And so I wonder, some of us this morning, if we've let our guard down. Some of us sitting there this morning, we, we have let our guard down. Some of you are listening, you've let your guard down. You're not what you used to be. You've kind of let your heart get cold. You used to come to church and you had a passion to be here. You used to sing hymns to God throughout the day. You used to read your scripture and memorize the Bible. And you just walked with God and you looked for opportunities to tell people about Jesus. But that's past. Your heart's grown cold. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are in the second part of our sermon entitled, Avoiding Moral Failure. Yesterday, Pastor Carl addressed the decline of morality in today's culture, and today we will see that carelessness has the potential for us to become callous towards sin in our lives. Please join us in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1, as we continue. So let's ask a question. Why would David take off his spiritual armor? Why did he let his guard down? It's obvious as you read the chapters before this, because he had had so many victories. And so he had thought, you know, we're we're on the winning side. Things are great. I don't even need to go out in the battle. I'll let General Joab handle this. And many times when you've had victory after victory after victory in your Christian life, you can begin to think that you're invincible. You may think that you're so strong that you would not fall. And we have a great track record of people in the Scripture who had had consistent victory, and then a fall came. Why? Because they let their guard down. And so David, he doesn't fall at the point of his weakness. King David falls at the point of his strength. He's known as a man of integrity. And so he writes this in Psalm 26. Listen to these words. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Examine me, O Lord, and try me. Test my mind and my heart, for your loving kindness is before my eyes, and I have walked in your truth. Taking another man's wife was the last thing that would have crossed his mind. You've heard me say it. I've said it for three decades, that an unguarded strength is potentially a double weakness. An unguarded strength is a double weakness. God may give you some strength in your heart, and when you leave it unguarded, you become a target for the evil one. Think about it. Take Peter, for instance. What was his great strength? He was brave. And there in the upper room on the night when Christ is going to be betrayed, he said, Lord, I don't know about the rest of these guys, but I'm willing to go to prison for you. I'm even willing to die for you. And he took out a sword he had acquired that day. And when they go to arrest the Lord after Jesus, of course, put over a thousand men on their backs, he cut off a man's ear there in the Garden of Gethsemane. But he ultimately falls at the point of his strength. And so when that little servant girl a short time later says, you're one of his, no, no, and three times calling down curses, he denies the Lord. Even so, here's King David. He got careless. He first was idle, and then he was impulsive. And what you find here in the first two verses are all the ingredients for sin. When you have an unexpected opportunity mixing with an unguarded strength, you have everything needed for sin. 
I mean, she's very beautiful, the text says. It's only said of three women in all of Scripture. She was very beautiful. She's bathing. And here's David. He is unguarded in his heart because he had gotten idle, and that led him to be impulsive. And so he begins to stare, and he falls into temptation. Jesus taught us to pray, Lord, deliver us from evil. Keep us from temptation. That's not just some chin music. That's something that we need to be sensitive to and pray about. And so I wonder, some of us this morning, if we've let our guard down. Some of us sitting there this morning, we, we have let our guard down. Some of you are listening, you've let your guard down. You're not what you used to be. You've kind of let your heart get cold. You used to come to church and you had a passion to be here. You used to sing hymns to God throughout the day. You used to read your scripture and memorize the Bible. And you just walked with God and you looked for opportunities to tell people about Jesus. But that's past. Your heart's grown cold. And here's David. He never, ever, ever, ever would have dreamed that he would do what is recorded of him in this chapter. But he got careless, and he began to coast. Now, in addition to the carelessness of David's sin, I want us to think for just a moment about the callousness of David's sin, the callousness of King David's sin. Look, if you will, now at verse 3. So David sent, sent some servants. David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is not is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? You can see the progression of sin as it unfolds. First he stares at her, then he desires her, then he inquires about her. Perhaps at first he was trying to figure out whether or not she was married or not. Maybe he thought he'd marry her. But of course the answer comes. Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Yes, it is. Now, we studied in our exposition of the epistle of James, LSD, remember it? Lust, sin, death. James describes how it unfolds, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death, a a broken fellowship with God. But David could stop at nothing. He had plenty of time to stop. Unlike Joseph, when he is given an opportunity to be immoral, he runs. But David lingers. He looks. By the way, God never tells us to fight this sin. He tells us to flee this sin, flee sexual immorality. Verse 4 says, David sent messengers and took her. When she came to him, he lay with her. David's evil desire is now in full trot. Maybe he rationalized to himself, all right, she's married, but we'll just talk. What's wrong with talking? Or maybe he thought, Uriah, like the rest of the men, they're going to be out there in the field for a few months. No one else will know the difference. But you see, the Scripture says here in James, when lust is conceived, it brings forth sin. And so David commits adultery with Bathsheba. And of course, she never resists. Now, if David were a pagan king, she might have thought in her own mind, well, I don't really have any choice unless I want to be killed, because pagan kings, if a woman did not comply, would often execute the woman. 
But this is not some pagan king. This is a man of God. She could have resisted. She could have said, King David, I'm married. I've made a promise, a covenant vow to God Almighty and to my precious husband Uriah. I will not do this. I tell you, it would have stopped right there. But she simply consents because she's probably eager to have a relationship with this handsome, powerful, rich man. And she is, of course, a beautiful woman. And I'm sure Bathsheba probably thought she never, ever, ever would have done what she did with King David. But when it's all over, Samuel records here in verse 4, and when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. Now, isn't that interesting? Bathsheba is following the laws of ritual purity. You can read about it in Leviticus 15, which is done a certain number of days after a woman's menstrual cycle. And God obviously dropped this in here for two reasons. First, to underscore and to confirm that the paternity of the child is beyond dispute. This is David's baby. But it's also a reminder of religious ritual to sin. She's not performing this religious ritual out of a pure heart, but out of an evil heart after an evil act. And we shouldn't be totally surprised because very often religious activity is mixed as a cover-up with sin. Many a person will commit adultery on Saturday night, and they'll come to church on Sunday morning. They'll sing the hymn. They'll, they'll give their tithes, somehow thinking everything's okay. But God made it clear to King Saul that to obey is better than sacrifice. Now the news of their sin is recorded here in verse 5. Notice, the woman conceived, and she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. What is she doing? Among other things, she's appealing to David to take the necessary steps that he might be able to take as king to preserve her life and his life from death. Why? Because of what God wrote in Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 10. Listen to what Moses recorded. If there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Now, this was the ultimate price for the sin of adultery, though from a practical matter, the death penalty was very rarely exercised for adultery because the law required to initiate the death penalty, there had to be two or three witnesses. And so this was usually a very private sin that was not done in the open. Not to mention, Moses makes it very clear that the one who makes the accusation has to be the very first one to cast the stone so that the rest of the nation will follow. So what does David do? He contrives a plan in his heart to cover over this sin. And it really is an expression of just how callous his heart had become. And I want you to see his callousness on at least three levels. First, David's callousness is seen and that he tries to blame Uriah. You know, I have some calluses all across both hands, and if I take a pin and prick those calluses, I don't feel anything. But if I take a pin and prick the middle of my palm, I'll feel it. Some people develop calluses on the human heart, and they become insensitive. And we see that with David. His callousness is seen first, and that he tries to blame Uriah. Look now, if you will, at verse 6. 
Then David said to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked concerning the welfare of Joab and the people in the state of war. So he sends a messenger to the general who's out in the field. He's supposed to send Uriah to King David. And David's attempt is here to legitimize his sin by blaming Uriah. He uh, invites him to come to give him a report about the people in the state of the war. But that's not going on in his mind. That's the last thought on his mind. He pretends to listen like he's earnestly concerned about his men. But he wants Uriah to go home and to enjoy the intimacies of marriage so that he can cover up the pregnancy and say, this is your baby. Now, people who normally would never do these kinds of things, when they get into adultery, they often will become liars and deceivers, and they will cover things up. Look at verse 8. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went up out of the king's house, and a present from the king was sent out after him. I don't know what the present was. Maybe it was a bottle of port wine. Whatever it was, like this is supposed to make everything okay, we read, but Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of the Lord and did not go down to his house. Now, when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters, and my lord Joab and, his, and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? By your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. He's saying, I'm just trying to honor my king and my God. I could not do this thing, O king, not by your life or by your soul. Then, verse 12, David said to Uriah, stay here today also. Tomorrow I will let you go. So Uriah returned and remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now, you really have to admire Uriah because his willingness is to want to be in identification with his comrades in arms. He can't literally be out in the field suffering with them, so to speak, laying on the ground and doing what so many of our Marines do when they go into battle and, you know, eating meals out of a can and all the sacrifices they make to protect our freedom. He's not able to uh, be out there with him, but he thinks, well, you know, neither am I going to enjoy the comforts at home. Why should I enjoy the comforts of food and uh, drink and the intimacies of a lawful legal relationship with my wife when my soldiers cannot do that? And you would have thought that Uriah's deep concern for the troops would have somehow pinched David's conscience, but it does not. I mean, here's Uriah who could have enjoyed lawful pleasures, and it should have convicted King David of his unlawful pleasure that he had had with Bathsheba, this man's wife. But he's calloused, so he goes to plan B. Look now at verse 13. Now David called him, and he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his bed with his Lord's servants, but he did not go down to his house. 
So David goes a little bit deeper into sin. This time he gets Uriah drunk so that he'll hopefully forget his sacrificial sacrificial vow and he'll have intimacy with his wife. Do you remember what Habakkuk the prophet said? Woe to you who gives drink to his neighbors, pouring it from the wineskin till they are drunk so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. Look, many an evil man, many an evil woman have known that if you can get someone buzzed on alcohol, that they will give up the otherwise virtuous expressions of morality that they would typically exercise. And King David's thinking along that way. I'll just get him buzzed. Certainly he'll go down and lie with his wife. So he puts him under the influence. And David's blame for that sin, and I could go on to a lecture about alcohol and how that could have happened where God could blame David and not just Uriah, but I, I don't have time for that this morning. You can listen to passages I have on alcohol. But here's this man. He refuses. He, he's not under the influence of David. He's going to do what's right. But David is calloused. He's now insensitive to the Lord. So he wants to blame Uriah. Secondly, David's callousness is seen and that he has Uriah murdered. Not only does he want to blame him, now he wants to have Uriah murdered. This is King David. Look at verse 14. Now in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. He had written in the letter saying, place Uriah in the front line of the fiercest battle and withdraw from him so that he may be struck down and die. I mean, what a paradox. He sends the plan by the hand of the man whom he is going to murder. I mean, what could be baser? What could be more barbaric? And here's a guy that he trusts so much. This man has so much integrity, he is convinced that Uriah is not even going to open the order and take a peek at it. This is a man with tremendous integrity. By the way, he is one of David's mighty men. You read of David's 30, and in one passage, 37, he had 30 men, but he had a total over the years of 37 different men who served in that precious group of men to defend Israel's honor. Here is this man, one of his precious 30, who has so much integrity he won't even open up the order, but he is going to murder him. And by the way, the jails are filled with people who have covered over their adultery, either by killing the person they committed adultery with or killing the person who would be violated by their adultery so the relationship can continue. It's happened with prince. It's happened with paupers, people who just disappear all of a sudden. And this is a a sin that potentially is going to bring great shame on the king and on the name of God. And if there's two or three witnesses, he should be executed. But let's keep reading. Who would have thought that David would have come up with this plan for murder? Look at verse 16. So it was as Joab kept watch on the city that he put Uriah at the place where he knew there were valiant men. The men of the city went out and fought against Joab. And some of the people among David's servants fell, and Uriah the Hittite also died. Now, please note, to pull off this plan, making sure that Uriah is killed, many of David's other men also died that day. So David's not really guilty of just murder. 
He's guilty of multiple murder because of this evil plan that he contrived. This man, after God's own heart, goes after God's own people. Verse 18, then Joab sent and reported to David all the events of the war. He charged the messenger, saying, when you have finished telling all the events of war to the king, and if it happens that the king's wrath rises, and he says to you, why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who struck down Abimelech, the son of Jerobosheth? Did not a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So David would have been expected to ask such questions. Of course, Joab is referring to a well-known battle. You can read about it in Judges chapter 9. And the Israeli forces at that time, like today, it's interesting, you go to Israel and certainly many of the people in the Israeli defense force are not observant and practicing, but you'll see some of them with open Bibles, with the Hebrew Scriptures sitting on the ground. And in this day, they studied prior war. And this was a famous war that you can study, and it would have been expected that they would have learned from this event. But after the messenger asked such questions, we're told, then you shall say, Uriah, your servant, the Hittite, is dead also. This is just a game. This is just cover up. If the king's wrath of his anger, as some translations render it, begins to show, David's just play acting. So the messenger, verse 22, departed and came and reported to David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men prevailed against us and came out against us in the field, but we pressed them as far as the entrance of the gate. Moreover, the archers shot at your servants from the wall. So some of the king's servants are dead and your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. I mean, this is a wicked diabolical plan that's hatched in hell. Maybe David rationalized in his mind. Well, I'm not actually the one drawing the sword, so I'm not technically murdering him. And men die in battle, and after all, if some of the men pull back, he still has his own sword and a fighting chance, and well, if he dies, he, he dies at his own hand. And you can rationalize anything in your mind long enough where you can make a wrong or right. But how could David do something like this? Here's Uriah, one of his mighty men, a loyal soldier. This innocent, valiant, gallant man of God was ready to die for the king's honor, but instead he dies at the king's hand. Now, please understand that when David commits adultery with Bathsheba, that's a hot-blooded sin. He looks, he lusts, he commits adultery. But Uriah's murder is a cold-blooded sin. It's planned, it's calculated, and then it's carried out. It's one of the dirtiest deeds recorded in Scripture. Is this the same king who wrote all those magnificent psalms? Is this the same king who cut off the edge of Saul's robe when he could have taken him out? Is this the same king who's known as executing justice for all? Is this the same king who keeps his promise to his dear friend Jonathan by letting Mephibosheth dine at his table? The writer of the Hebrews says, Take care, lest any of you become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. King David had become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Proverbs 6.32 was really being fleshed out in his life. 
It says, the one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. He who would destroy himself does this. His heart is hard. His heart is calloused. And your heart, my heart, can become just as hard and just as calloused if we let our guard down. King David never, ever, ever, ever would have imagined he would have done these kinds of things. But his carelessness leads to callousness. It's a slow progression. Look at verse 25. It's almost an unbelievable statement. Then David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, do not let this thing displease you. Literally, the Hebrew reads, don't let this be evil in your eyes. Do not let this thing displease you. For the sword devours one as well as another. Make your battle against the city stronger and overthrow it and so encourage him. So David is obviously glad to hear the report. His scheme has worked. Don't let this thing be evil in your eyes. Don't feel bad about it, Joab. Now, on two other occasions, as recorded by the prophet Samuel, when David compromises his integrity, Joab calls him on the mat, and David repents. But not on this occasion. Joab is silent. He says nothing. And he just blindly carries out the king's evil scheme. You know how it is, general. The sword devours one as it does another. That's just the hazards of being in a battle. And David's response reminds me of the adulterous woman who in Proverbs 30 and verse 20 says, I have done nothing wrong. Now let's read verses 26 and 27. Now when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. When the time of mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife, and then she bore him a son. So nine months passed. But notice the bottom line. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. David has this casual view of sin. And to underscore how God feels about it all the way through this narrative, there's silence. And then God drops in the bomb. The thing that David did was evil in the sight of the Lord. It's just a reminder, you may think, well, God's not really watching. God is absent. God sees it all. And we look at our culture, and we look at the LGBTQ plus wickedness of our day. We see the widespread adultery and fornication, and we see that some of the stupidest policies in the history of the nation defying and denying the very things that makes a country a country. According to the book of Acts, that a country has borders and we're ignoring these borders and everything else we're doing. And we think, what is happening? God is watching. He knows what he is about. He's not blind what is happening to America. Now remember, this is one of God's children. He's describing King David who, dis who pleased himself, but in the process he displeased God. Further, we need to underscore another aspect of his callousness there in your outline. David's callousness is seen in that he waits to confess. To listen again to today's message, you can use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. Remember that you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 
1-800-273-7478 and requesting program Avoiding Moral Failure. Search the Scriptures is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you would like to help sustain this ministry, click the Give button on our app or visit searchthescriptures.org. Please join us tomorrow as we continue to search the Scriptures.